Please note, this documentary contains language and discussion from the start which some listeners may find distressing and offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Turnstiles The Touchlines. So, I've just got out of the pub. Um, not the nicest one, to be honest. Not because a bunch of old men interrogated me a little bit, but because of something which I think me and we really, really need to look at next, discrimination, because that was too much. I, um, nah, I'm gonna need a break. Since the return of fans to stadiums post-Covid, it seems as if there's a new incident involving fans every week, whether that be the scenes at the final of the 2020 European Championships at Wembley, a racial social media post, or just something kicking off at your local non-league club. I'm Owen Taylor. And I'm Jack Carson. And we wanted to go on a journey to find out if there's a troublesome culture returning in English football, and are we regressing to a time where football hooliganism was the norm? This is episode 3 of Turnstiles to Touchlines. When myself and Jack started this journey, we knew it wasn't all going to be plain sailing. And we're sat here right now after sending dozens of emails to clubs and players trying to hear their stories. Right now it feels as if we've hit a bit of a brick wall. No one seems to be up for speaking to us. And to be fair to them, we're making this documentary at a time where the end of the season is upon us and I'm sure they're already filled to the brim with media duties. Look, obviously Owen, you know, racism is one of the worst things to have to talk about. So, you know, we'll keep trying and I'm sure someone will want to speak to us. saying this to my dad the other day because when you look at that incident and then actually you oh hang on no i have got an email actually see i told you there's nothing to worry about okay so it is from oh perfect the exact charity that we want to speak to as well let's um let's try and set something up but before that we need to go back to the catalyst of this documentary euro 2020 when all around the country we heard news bulletins like this. Three England players have been subject to racist abuse after missing penalties in the Euro 2020 final against Italy. The Metropolitan Police condemned the unacceptable abuse of Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho and Bakaya Saka and have said they will be investigating. We've created a situation where they feel it's right to target the victim of racist abuse and booing A YouGov survey following the final of Euro 2020 revealed that one in three people who did not think racism was a serious problem in football now do. The survey also showed that 60% of fans who took part support taking the knee. Data from the UK Football Policing Unit found that 207 social media posts were deemed to be criminal. 34 came from accounts in Britain and 123 in other countries. Now, Twitter has said that the UK was by far the largest country of origin for racist abuse following the Euro 2020 finals. The social media company added that 99% of the accounts which it suspended over the abuse were not anonymous, although it did not disclose how many accounts were suspended in total. Sadly, it's not just a one-off incident. It's happening every week, whether it be over social media or at the ground itself. And at the time of doing this episode, Shrewsbury Town goalkeeper Marco Morossi claimed to have been racially abused by an individual behind the goal as Shrewsbury Town travelled to Charlton Athletic for their penultimate League One fixture. Both clubs released a statement and London police arrested an individual soon after the match. 
an unnamed Burton Albion player was subject to racial abuse following the Brewers' League One fixture against Wigan in early April. Every season, Kick It Out publishes their data as to how many of the reports they receive each season. We're still waiting for the 2021-22 data as we record this, but 2020-2021 data saw a decrease in the number of reports with over 100 incidents. But that's because fans weren't in stadiums for the majority of the season. It's no secret racism is on the rise in our beautiful game. You just have to check the news on Monday after a weekend of football and you almost expect to read about it at that point. But what we don't hear enough is about what's being done. How often is it reported? Who are the charities working behind the scenes to make a difference? Who are the people working with these charities to make a difference? One charity making strides to tackle discrimination is Show Racism the Red Card. And their organisation had a great year in 2021, especially amongst the challenges of COVID-19. They had their most successful Wear Red Day yet, with over 250,000 participants. So who are Show Racism the Red Card? We sat down with Deputy Chief Executive Paul Kearns, who told us all about them. Show Racism the Red Card is is the UK's leading anti-racism educational charity, established way back in 1996 and have been working over the following 26 years to try and tackle racism first and foremost in society. And that, you know, as a byproduct of that within within the game of football, I think Jack started the conversations by, by talking about culture. And I think that that's a really important word because we have a culture of racism within, within our society. As long as it remains within our society, pervades our society, then we'll see it manifest in, in football as well. So the organisation has always been about using football, the power of football, the, the power of role models to help educate about the dangers of racism. And, and as I say, because we, we have that problem within society, that's where we where we target our efforts. But we use football as a, as a vehicle to, to open people's hearts and minds to that anti-racism message. So in terms of me, myself and my involvement, I've been with the organisation since 2006. I came from a a political background, so I've always had a a keen interest in social justice. And when I saw the opportunity to combine my passion for the game of football with my passion for social justice, it felt like a natural fit. For me, 16 years later, I'm still here, so I must have been right in in some sense that it it was a good fit for me. My role now is, is currently Deputy Chief Executive of the organization across the UK. And that involves a a number of different things under my umbrella of um, first and foremost, leading the campaign team. So we have a a team of campaign workers that, that work all across the UK, particularly with football clubs. Show Racism the Red Card was established in January 1996, thanks in part to a donation by then Newcastle United goalkeeper Shaka Hislop. In 1990s Newcastle, Shaka was at a petrol station near St James's Park where he was confronted with a group of young people shouting racist abuse at him after one of the group realised they had been speaking to Shaka Hislop, the Newcastle United football player, they came over for an autograph. It was from this experience that Shaka realised he could harness his status as a professional player to make a difference. Coupled with the power of football and his status as a role model, Shaka thought education could be an effective strategy in challenging racism in society. Now like Jack mentioned there, Show Racism the Red Card's approach to tackle racism is through education. In March 2021, hundreds of schools agreed to sign up for anti-racist curricula. The reform of the curriculum aims to reflect the achievement of black and minority ethnic people and address the harmful impacts left by colonialism. 
Titled The Diverse Curriculum, The Black Contribution, it provides pupils aged 5 to 14 with nine weeks of lessons on subjects including the Windrush generation, activism, British identity and diversity in the arts and science. The Premier League are also trying to do their bit in order to tackle racism. As part of their No Room for Racism campaign, they launched a series of free resources for teachers and students to learn about racism and pre-recorded videos from some of their favourite players about their experiences. Show Racism the Red Card are also working with young people to educate them on racism, but also at the same time giving them experiences and memories that will last a lifetime. We organise educational events for young people at football clubs where we can have a day educating them on the variance, the various nuances of racism, how to recognise racism, how to challenge racism, how to respond to racism. And we take them through a series of, of, of educational workshops to explore some of those key themes. But then in the afternoon, the highlight for the day is, is that we hold a press conference in the afternoon. So what, what we do is we ask young people to act as journalists throughout the day. And they're tasked with, with researching a story around racism. So we, we put the preparatory work in for that through the education workshops. But then in the afternoon session, we, we hold a press conference where they're the journalist and they get to, to put their questions to a, a panel of special guests. And that will usually involve players from the club and that will be men's, men's team and women's team. And they come along and... You know, people get to 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 put their questions on the issue of racism to their heroes and, and hear the answers firsthand. And that's a, it's a kind of a money can't buy experience for young people that that stays with them, resonates with them. And I'm very pleased to say, you know, it's been proven to to have a, a, a demonstrable impact on young people's attitudes to, towards racism. So that's one of the big things we do within the campaign team. We also run a national school competition which is the largest equality steam competition for schools in England. And that involves in an average year about 25,000 young people across the country taking part in that competition. And the only stipulation for entry is that they must have worked with our educational resources and, and again, have a ground in, in understanding what racism is, what it looks like, how it can manifest. But then the, the really, for me, the really positive thing about the competition is that it's, it gives young people ownership of the anti-racism message and allows them the opportunity to become creative. So we'll receive a range of entries in the medium of artwork, creative writing, song, dance, films, um, you know, you name it, young people will find a, find a way to tie an anti-racism message to it. And, and, and again, it's, you know, for us, it's, it's really positive to to see that one of the things I'm, I've been personally touched by with that over the last couple of years is, is how we've kind of seen global events come through in the competition. So the impact of Black Lives Matter can't, can't be underestimated or understated. But when you see that coming directly from young people, it, it, it shows that they, they are aware of that, that wider world around them and what, what's going on globally. And again, you know, really let's say give, giving them the opportunity to take ownership of the anti-racism message really really gives us the opportunity to drive that further the black lives matter movement reignited and the taking of the knee became a symbolic gesture in the fight against racism following the murder of george floyd in may 2020 of course when football returns part of project restart after the pause due to covid premier league players wore black lives matter on the back of their shirts instead of their names and started taking the knee prior to kick off each game and that still continues to this day for most clubs, but we'll come on to that later. 
It's a gesture which has divided opinion, with some fans arguing it's politicising football, while others saying it's just a basic fight for human rights. I have a big issue with it being labelled as a political gesture. My, my personal opinion is that it's a human rights gesture. It's, it's about players demonstrating that they are united against racial inequality, um, and that for me is a, is, a, is a basic human right. I think you're right in that the message has been misconstrued by some people, and I think deliberately so. I think there's been a lot of misinformation out there, and what, what again has really resonated with me has been, I think it was midway through last season or just after Christmas that the PFA put it to the players. Did they want to continue with the message? And, and the players voted overwhelmingly mid-season that they did want to continue with that message. And then the end of the season going into this season now, the players once again made it very clear they wanted to continue that message. Now, many clubs have chosen to stop taking the knee prior to kickoffs, including Bournemouth, Huddersfield and nearly a dozen clubs in Leagues 1 and 2. Most notably, Brentford chose to stop taking the knee during the season they got promoted from the Championship, however started again when they got to the Premier League. Key players such as Ivan Tony and Wilfred Zahar, though, chose to stop taking the knee themselves. Ivan Tony released a statement explaining his decision, saying, I still believe in what I believe, and I will continue to do so. In terms of making a difference, I'll do what I think I need to do in the background. Now, Owen, you actually tried nailing down Ivan Tony for an interview, didn't you? I did, yeah, Jack. Um, I know you're a big Peterborough fan, of course. He had many great years for you. And, of course, now at Brentford, I got in contact with Brentford. They were very helpful. They gave the response, which, while well, we struggled to get out of many other clubs, and, you know, with the end of the Premier League season just a few weeks away from when we're recording this, Ivan is in, unfortunately completely swamped in media duties. It's interesting, isn't it, though, the scenario at Brentford? Because, of course, they chose to stop taking the knee halfway through the 2020-21 campaign. But after the Euros, when they got promoted to the Premier League, it's something that they picked up again. Their statement read, Taking the knee will not on its own solve the problem of racism, but it will continue to draw attention to the discrimination that exists within football, as well as society generally. We all saw the support that the act of taking the knee received from fans before matches during Euro 2020. Interestingly, this was a point also made by Paul Kearns. Undoubtedly, the, the idea of taking it forward into this season was, was on the back of the Euros and what happened to the three young uh, black players who missed penalties in the final. But, but I, I think, say, equally important for me was that it happened in the middle of last season when there was a lot of backlash against the, the gesture, a lot of, of, lot of misinformation, people trying to politicise the gesture when, as I say, it was, it was a simple gesture of players in the simplest terms possible demonstrating their, their humanity and, their, like I say, their commitment to wanting to tackle racial injustice, which, you know, I think... <laughs> To, to a man they should be applauded for because it, it was, for me, I'd say it's a basic human right, but it was a brave gesture in the, in the face of overwhelming adverse publicity for it. And I, again, I was in huge admiration of, of Gareth Southgate and the England squad for the way they approached the taking of the knee from the start of the tournament throughout the whole tournament. And then obviously, as, as I mentioned earlier, it ended in sad circumstances for three particular players, but probably for the whole squad, to be fair. I think I think that was that was felt throughout the whole squad, what happened to those three players, because they were clearly a very united team. And, and I know that those three players would have already known that they had the strength and support of their teammates behind them because the players had, had made it clear that they were prepared to stand up against racism prior 
to, to those you know sad circumstances coming coming into play. So yeah, I'm I'm a huge advocate of players taking the knee, and and, and what I've really been enthused by as well is is seeing it trickle down the football pyramid. So I remember watching an interview with Connor Cody and Tyrone Mings just before Villa played Wolves earlier this season, and Connor Cody was talking about his young lad had approached him and 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 asked him what why why were the players doing it and then taking it into his Sunday league team and and and, and youngsters wanting to do it on a Sunday on the, on a Sunday league pitch because you'll often hear it when there's bad behaviour by a player or a, an unsavoury incident in a game you'll often hear that that mantra of what happens on in the Premier League on a Saturday will be repeated on a Sunday league pitch up and down the country and that's true but we also have to recognise when that's something positive and when that's a that's a strong anti-racism message. And, and again, that's something that you know I'm I'm really in favour of. And I and I think I think it's been a, a real positive development within the game the last the last two years or so. A polling organisation YouGov asked supporters from nine different countries whether they support the taking of the knee or not. More football fans in Europe, including those in England, Scotland, and Wales, are supportive of players taking a knee than they are against it but they are split over the jester's importance to tackling racism. In England, from a survey of 547 football fans, 54% said they backed players and staff taking a knee to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Half of those people, 27%, said they strongly support it, with the other half somewhat supporting it. Now, I know this is a lot of numbers, but try and follow me here. 39% of football fans in England said they opposed players taking a knee, while 7% said they did not know. Now it's that 39% opposing the knee taking that we probably really need to focus on. There are also high levels of support among fans in European countries on taking a knee. Portugal had the highest number of support with 79%, followed by Italy with 73% and Spain 71%. Only the Netherlands had less support to players taking a knee than England and more opposition with 44% in favour and 45% of people not supporting the move. Whether a player wants to take the knee or not, they still receive racist abuse. But you'd be wrong to suggest that the discrimination is only aimed at those on the pitch. It can happen to anyone. You'll remember broadcaster and journalist Johnny Gould from episode one. Well, let's properly introduce you to Johnny Gould, the football fan. As a boy... I was just into um, to cars, and then about nine years old, I suddenly converted to football because that's what everyone else in the class seemed to do. They had no taste. They were all Birmingham City fans. Um, and like the Osmonds at the time, Liverpool seemed to be the team to support. So I, um, I told this to my uncle, and he said, you don't support Liverpool. You're not from Liverpool you are an Aston Villa fan. And I didn't know any better. I didn't really know what Liverpool was. I, I just, it just seemed to be the sort of peer group. And it was Aston Villa. I realised then that I would be third generation Villa supporter. And that not only that, that my grandfather had been a professional footballer. So the identity was very clear. I was to be a football fan, Aston Villa supporter, and don't argue. And I'm happy with that decision. Very happy with that, Jack. Up until the early summer of 2021, Johnny Gould was the director of the Aston Villa Supporters Trust, an organisation priding itself on strengthening the voice of fans in the decision-making processes at Aston Villa, along with multiple charity and community work as well. But following a Passover message made on social media by Aston Villa Football Club for their Jewish community, 
an avalanche of 20,000 hateful replies ensued. As Johnny spoke out and the Jewish Chronicle made the Villa Passover Facebook pylon front page story, the abuse got worse, with more pylons and retweets, each magnifying the hate and each an attempt to reduce Johnny even further. When we spoke to him, I wanted to hear his experience. Yeah, I'll let Villa off, really. They, they shouldn't be. If we, if we look at what happened at Yorkshire Cricket Club, pretty much the same disgusting racism happened to me. Uh, it's unforgivable. I have no connection with the club at all. There are officers inside that football club who are also guilty of that racism. I was kind of bundled out. I'll never forgive them. The one thing that saved it was actually Paul Tyrrell, Chief Operations Officer, and Christian Perslow, who reached out to me. Mr. Perslow understood my grievances. I have my Aston Villa friends. I still have them. Um, I love the team. I love Steven Gerrard. I want us to win. I've been to several away games and a few home games this season. Um, but I want nothing to do with the club per se. And it's unforgivable what happened to me. Johnny, for the purposes of the documentary, could you tell us what that abuse was? I'd, I'd rather not, Jack. It's too upsetting. I'll just say you can put that in. It's unforgivable. I'll never forgive those people for turning on me when I thought that being a Brummie, being an Aston Villa supporter, was the top of everyone's identity, irrespective of colour, creed, sex. And it's a lie. And it's unforgivable. And as I say, the only reason why I didn't act on it was because basically of the generosity of Paul Tyrrell and Christian Perslow. Following the abuse, Johnny said, football declaring no room for racism must also mean no room for anti-Semitic dog whistles from abusers who stay under the radar of specific racism. Football must confront this because sadly, it now firmly competes for attention with the beautiful game. So why was there this increase of racism? Was it due to an emergence of social media? Was it to do with our political landscape and the direction our country was heading towards? You may remember David Cameron promising a referendum during his election campaign for Britain to leave the European Union. Now, this was a seismic political event that caused a massive divide in the country. Data from the Institute of Labour Economics showed the UK's referendum vote to leave the European Union was followed by an increase in race and religious hate crime of 15-25% to 25% in England and Wales. So does the problem of racism stem from a wider culture rather than just football? For me, it's twinned with what's going on in, in our society. So again, if you look at that period of time, we were building up towards the Brexit vote. And I think during that period, you had a, a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment throughout the country, but a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric. You know, as we've seen the culture of the country start to divide a bit more, we've then seen it creep back into racism, creep back into the game, particularly within, let's say, the stadia and, and kind of fan bases. And then there was the incident, again, I'm not too sure when it was, but probably three, four years ago where Raheem Sterling was, was abused at Chelsea. I'm not picking on Chelsea, by the way. <laughs> These just seem to be high-profile incidents. And, and again, I know they're happening at, you know, at other clubs. But again, that was in, a, I think, a 5.30 kickoff live on Sky Sports. And 
the individuals who were racially abusing him had to be aware they were live across the nation at that time. And, and you know, when I was talking earlier, saying we'd set up this zero tolerance environment around the match, all, all of a sudden that seemed to be disappe- disappearing. People seemed to be emboldened by, by what was going on, you know, wider society. And again, that for me was kind of a bit of a turning point that, you know, you hadn't seen it live on a on a game on Sky in, in, to that level for, for quite some time. So what goes on when there's an incident? What's the thinking behind it? What questions do we need to ask? When talking to Paul, half the incidents he brought up made us realise how much of a divide these incidents caused when really they shouldn't have divided anyone at all. Most notably Raheem Sterling at Chelsea. Of course, there's also the well-known case of Luis Suarez and Patrice Evra. But first, Glenn Kamara, the Rangers midfielder, was racially abused by Slavia Prague's Andre Kudea. We're probably quite high on on people's list of of who to call when there is this kind of incident. So yeah, you know, we 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 got involved in in the Glasgow Rangers incident with with Glenn Kamara, offered our support, work with the with the PFA in Scotland to 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 make sure that that player is fully supported throughout the process. Any any incidents? Any incident probably within the game over, you know, that period of time that we've been around, we've been either consulted upon or um, we've been the go-to people to speak about. Um, the, the the big one that stands out for me is the is the Luis Suarez incident with, with Patrice Evra because I would say I've, got a, I've obviously got a personal link to that in, in, in my support for the club, but it's, it, it's probably for me, the one that stands out as as kind of the worst possible way you can you can handle one of one of those incidents and the fallout from it for me was considerable so you know the fact that uh, if you remember the liverpool players wearing t-shirts in support of Luis suarez which you know the likes of jamie carragher has since come out since retiring said it, somebody didn't want to do he's actually apologized for doing so which was i thought was huge Bearing in mind, Luis Suarez himself has never apologised to, to Patrice Evra. I, I thought that was a, a big gesture from Jamie Carragher. But for me, the way that whole incident was portrayed was typical of, of how the media handle um, racist incidents within this country. And as I say, when an incident happens, we will be contacted. And, and the question I was asked repeatedly from tabloid newspapers was, is Luis Suarez a racist? Now, I've, I've never met the man, so I... How, how can I say if he's, if he's a racist individual or not? I don't know. I know he acted in a racist way. I know he used racist language and was, was engaged in racist behaviour. But does that mean he's a racist at the core of his being? I, I genuinely don't know. And I think what happened was that issue, and we, we talked about the power of football earlier on, that issue was, was represented in a tribal manner. So when the question is, is Luis Suarez a racist? Liverpool fans automatically have to say no. Manchester United fans automatically have to say yes. And we're talking about the wrong issue. We're talking about, is this one individual a racist? Rather than what's prompted him to act in that way, what in and around his life, his culture, his upbringing, whatever it might be, makes him feel that that might be acceptable language to use. But the most important thing we weren't talking about was what's the impact of this on the target of that, which was Patrice Evra. That was the person we should have been concentrating on and we went. And I don't know what the time period was, maybe six six to eight weeks later, Manchester United came back to Anfield in the FA Cup and Patrice Evra was booed every time he touched the ball by 50,000 people. And, And as a Liverpool fan, that was genuinely my lowest moment supporting the club because 
as I said, if you look at what happened with Ronaldo, Liverpool fans are a very socially just-minded group of people. And if we've created a situation where they feel it's right to target the victim of racist abuse and boo him, something seriously has gone wrong in the narrative around that incident. So, so yeah, like I say, that was, you know, for me, it's the one that really stands out because it was handled so badly, I think, by the media, but also by the club. And I, I take I take no pride in saying that. But what I would also say is, since that since that incident, the club have probably been one of the best clubs that we've worked with over the last ten years. Because I think there was an internal recognition of they could have done so much better on that incident. And um, as I say, they're now one of the most proactive clubs around around anti-racism. And, and again, for me, should be commended for that as well. Those incidents involving Welbeck, Sterling, Camera and ever, of course, unfolded in stadiums. But in the past few years, there's just been a real shift online and social media is becoming a bit of a cesspit for discrimination. In August 2021, it was revealed that the PFA data found that two in five Premier League players received abuse on Twitter during the 2020-2021 season. The research found 176 of the 400 players who were found to hold a Twitter account received abuse. That's 44% of players. I think probably since then it has moved online and you know again going back a couple of years there were I think a number of Man United players who who missed penalties and the, the, the second did miss the penalty then the racist abuse started online and sadly that that seems to have become a bit of a trend that that has built and built and built and as I spoke earlier you know culminating in what happened in in the final of the Euros last year to, to the three England players and and yeah, it, I think I think it's crept back into the game, but then it, it's it's moved online, and for me, increased exponentially once it kind of did take root online as well. Of course, it's easy to log on to Twitter and use a fake name and any old photo. You can basically be anonymous. So, do you think that it's a big motive for people to send abuse towards players? Undoubtedly, the the, the kind of shield of anonymity does does embolden people to. To spout that message, I don't think it's always the case. To be fair, I think I think um, as I say, culturally, we've you know again I mentioned Brexit earlier, and then again the election of Donald Trump in America showed that 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 country was again quite a polarized um, divide in, in where people stood. And I think when when you live in a polarized society, I think people are are quite emboldened to to, to go forward and. And spread their, you know, strong opinions, whether you know whether they're whichever side of the divide they may be. And I think, I think, yeah, undoubtedly, there's a there's a level of anonymity that gives some people the the extra impetus, I think, to to spout those kind of you know abhorrent messages. But I think social media itself, my my personal opinion is that social media is a fairly toxic place and. I think as a medium, it, it actually it, it promotes echo chambers. And I think what, what happens on social media, again, is, is that the polarisation and the divide is, is, is even more greatly exaggerated because people are, are hearing one side of a story. It, it's then, you know, backed up by others with a very similar opinion. There's, there's so much potential for levels of misinformation to, to, to be shared and to escalate. Yeah, I think I think people get led down rabbit holes on social media, and 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 once you are not hearing a balanced viewpoint, and you're only you only hearing one one side of an argument, I think I think it does. I can see very easily how 
how things can escalate and um, you know take this stage further you know how people can become radicalized online or susceptible to more extreme behaviors um, across the spectrum and I think yeah as I say for me it's a kind of it's a fairly toxic environment that you know obviously has some, some positives and, and you know has has changed the world in, in some positive ways but I think not necessarily um, across the board and, and I think it's got a lot to answer for in in terms of some of the cultures that, that have been created from it. But tackling social media abuse also means prosecuting those who do it as well. If you remember from episode one, we spoke to Chief Inspector Richard Cox from the West Midlands Police. Let's bring him back now, because when we interviewed him, we had an important question to ask about how you tackle this discrimination that comes online. West Midlands Police have invested in what we call a hate crime officer within our football unit, who is PC Stuart Ward. Now, his sole job is to investigate hate crime at football. Um, and they, as far as I'm aware, he's the only one in the country. So if, if you attend any one of our six stadiums um, within the force area and you are um, a hate crime occurs, which unfortunately still does happen on a regularity, unfortunately, then that, that incident will be crime recorded under Home Office crime recording rules and will be investigated. And that investigation will, will be done by PC Ward. Now, part of that will be involving um, speaking to phone companies and internet providers, etc., etc. Uh, we do look, we do hook in with the UK FPU, which is the United Kingdom Football Policing Unit. They are trialling a pilot at the moment where they will do a lot of the initial investigation for us. Um, albeit that's only started very, very recently in, in, in the last few weeks and months. So that's just working through now. We've had a number of successful investigations um, in the last sort of six or 12 months since the office has been in place. And we have, we have, we have a number of cases that are being charged and um, that are going to court. The key thing for me is now, which I think is brilliant, is fans don't accept it anymore. So if you go to a football, a football stadium now, when you racially abuse a player or, or a fan, you homophobically abuse them, or you act in a misogynistic way, most fans will call you out. And they may call you out on a direct basis, but they equally may call you out by um, by speaking to a steward or speaking to a police officer or using a text line number. So most clubs have a text line number now where you can say, I'm sat in seat 15, you know, row M, seat, seat 15, chap in row Z or, or row P, 16, he has just racially abused the, you know, the, the Aston Villa player, you know, you know for example. Um, and then that comes straight through to the club and we can act upon it live time. So I'm really comfortable with how we do that. Lots of our footballers who even play for the Premier League teams or the League One teams or the Championship teams, they don't have any interaction with ourselves, so they actually don't understand or don't appreciate that we are really interested if they are racially abused online. And actually, here's a phone number for you. If you are racially abused, ring this number. Someone will answer and we will investigate your crime. So. Show Racism the Red Card not only works with young people, they also work with clubs and players. I remember as a kid, I've still got them somewhere, signed posters of uh, of my team, Peterborough, with the show races and the red card, them holding it in the photo. So we wanted to know what it is they do with clubs as well as schools. We're very fortunate to to have been around, around as long as we, we have. You know, for us, we've kind of been in the charity space. We've seen the, the demands and the request upon clubs from the charity sector increase throughout that, throughout that period. And 
I, I often say if we were to start show races from the red card today or tomorrow, we wouldn't get that level of engagement from clubs or players because there's so many competing demands on their time now. So we're very lucky that we were established when we were and we were able to build those relationships with the clubs and we're fortunate to have them. As you say yourself, you know, most most people recognise show races in the red card because they've probably seen a team poster of players holding up the red cards to demonstrate that that zero tolerance approach to racism and that that strong anti-racism stance that that each and every club across the country has. And those, you know, those posters are, are kind of our calling card in that they're, they're up and down the country on, on young people's bedroom walls as a reminder, you know, that that their heroes do do stand together against racism. And, you know, for me, there's, there's no more powerful message. The, the other big way we work with the clubs is, is as I mentioned earlier, is those, those educational events. There's no substitute for having young people to be able to hear a message direct from, from their heroes. Again, when I started this in, in 2006, when I started my role, sorry, in 2006, football was big in this country and, and players were, were role models. I would say now they're, they're icons and I would say that their influences in, in every sense of that word, obviously they have the, themselves, their, their social media presence and that platform. And a lot of them fortunately do use their voice to, to change things for the good. But I, I think for me, the, the, the profile and, and the power of the game and, and particularly individual players has, has, has increased hugely in, in, the, in the 15, 16 years I've been involved. So where are we at now in terms of tackling racism? Well, it's quite clear we've got a long way to go and you don't need to look any further than the Euros or what happens even when a player misses a penalty to see the sad cases of racism every week. But organisations such as Show Racers and the Red Card are sending a powerful message. They're striving to make a change, to educate people. And whilst at the same time they're educating, they're providing once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for youngsters to meet their heroes in the attempt to tackle racism. We're well into our journey now too and constantly in the back of our minds has been a want and a need for us to discover the fastest growing and most exciting part of the game, women's football. But if there's one thing we've learnt, nothing is always as it seems. For example, look what's happened to Coventry. They're, they're a team that they were all on full-time contracts only, only this last year and it, two days before Christmas being told that they haven't got a job. Turnstiles to Touchlines was presented, produced and edited by Jack Carson and Owen Taylor with thanks to Paul Kearns and Johnny Gould and Chief Inspector Richard Cox and the West Midlands Police for helping us along in part three of our journey as we try to find out if there really is a troublesome culture plaguing English football. Trouble on my left, trouble on my right I've been facing trouble on my side.